history, Rabbi Bleiweiss. This one is lecture number 20. I mislabeled yesterday's, which is really 19. Uh, I also, I, uh, a, sin of, a sin of omission, commission. Um, I mentioned that, um, he, uh, that when we last left our heroes and anti-heroes, Avshalom had not followed Achisophel's advice, and I slipped by saying by not sleeping with the concubines. No, no, the Pasuk is quite explicit, as Barak points it, pointed out. He really did do that part. Uh, which is subject of discussion in the Mepharshim, not a badge of honor in the case of Absalom. He did sleep publicly with his father's concubines as what was done in those days, a show of power. Because if you're with the king's uh, concubines, then that's saying already that you've usurped or taken over the king's uh, position. Um, but where he hadn't followed, he had not followed Ahisophel's advice was in terms of military strategy, how to go, to, uh, go out to war, was it under Ahisophel's cover by night, or was it as uh, he fo- it, it, it eventually followed Hushai's suggestion to broadly confo- confront his father, David, by day. There's a battle, this is where we're holding right now. It, it, it takes place in a place called Machanaim. David tells his men to spare his son Absalom. And if you notice a pattern, and you really should be tracing patterns, this is very consistent with the Magin David uh, that, we, that we've come to know and love, of somebody who's really above personal considerations, personal uh, um, uh, concerns with kavod, self, self-honor, and the rest of that. His own son has totally betrayed him. This is Rav Chaim Shmulevitz says like this. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz used to go down to what's called the Tomb of Absalom in the Kidron Valley beneath the city of David. Can you picture? Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'll take you there this year. Beneath the Mount of Olives, Harazesim, there are these three really impressive monumental tombs. Um, it's almost certainly not the real Avshalom, but it's called that. So if Chaim Shmulevitz, used to, the, the great Rosh Hashiva from the Mir, used to, uh, used to take, take people there, and he cried. He said, you know, you have to realize David Melech, David Melech wept for Absalom, his son. His son betrayed him. I mean, can you can you imagine being stabbed in the back more severely? Your own son used to bring your power, sleeping with their concubines publicly, and, and yet David said, "Please spare my son." He cared. He was above personal uh, envy and enmity and any any kind of negative mida. That's why he's David Melech. That's why he's Zolcha to do, to be the forebear of the Mashiach Tzidkenu. And in the confrontation, Absalom goes out, and famously, it's a really graphic image. You're meant to, certain images from history, I, I encourage you to make, take a mental snapshot of, and keep it, keep it in your, in your, uh, in your, in your uh, computer vault up there. And, and, and imagine this, that he's going, and his, he, he's, remember he's got this famously long hair, uh, to look this, the part of the Nazir, and his hair, which is also a source of his arrogance, gets caught in an oak tree. And um, he, the horse keeps going, but Absalom is stuck, his hair hang, dangling from the tree. And Yoav, the general, general, sees an opportunity, and as literally a sitting duck, Absalom is just hanging there, alive, but stuck in the tree by his hair, he slays him. Yoav slays the son, and David is bereft. David said it was explicitly against David's order. Do not kill my son. Spare my son. And, uh, and, and, and Yoab didn't listen. And the battle's over. The revolution is over. And, uh, and David, David is a sad man. 
hold the thought for just a second. The Mishnah in Sota points out, of course, everything that happens in Hashem's world is with the purpose and meaning. The source of his arrogance, which is his hair, was literally that which ensnared him, trapped him to the point of death. Aaron? I don't know, and it sounds plausible. It sounds right. There's a medrash that says, and I'll, I'll quote you, but I can't verify it, but it does sound right. That he could have cut himself down, but a Kaddish Baruch as it were, made a miracle that prevented him from doing this. The ground opened beneath him. Well, he, at least the version I heard of the same thing, he actually realized what he did when the ground opened up. Uh-huh. So he could have cut himself down, but he knew that... He knew that this was Hashem's uh, inevitable fate that he had to accept. Okay. If we're considering and we're, we're, we're doing an assessment of David Amelik's life, there are a couple more names to, to include here. One of them is a figure by the name of Sheva ben Bichri. Are you overwhelmed? Too many names I'm throwing, in, I'm throwing at you? You can keep track of these. It really is, I mean, you really, these are, these are some of the power hitters of history, uh, for better and for worse. Sheva ben Bichri, Chazal actually say that um, it may be that he's the same person. He'd be a old, very old man right now. Sheva ben Bichri is the same person. He has a different name. His name is Micha. Not the great prophet Micha, who doesn't come for a long time yet, but who is the original Micha that we indeed met here? Do you remember? I know. He built the Pesel that never was destroyed up in, uh, up in the north of Israel in Dan. Pesel Shel Micha, that was the cause of a lot of the uh, bad things that happened to the Jews, including all, the, all of the uh, terrible episode around the Pelegish Megivah. So Chazal say that one, one shot is that this is Micha, now called Sheva ben Bechri. And um, he now rallies Yisrael, the Jewish people, to a rebellion for a period of time uh, against David. He's pursued by Yoav. Ultimately, Sheva, Sheva is killed by his own people. So he's, he's uh, an icon to, to keep track of here who really signifies rebellion, uh, problematic, problematic personality. Um, there is, in the, in the days of David, the next great, great sequence of events, or significant sequence of events, there's a famine in the land that strikes for three years. Everything happens for a reason. This one is a result of one of Shaul, King, King Saul's deficiencies. Saul, back in the day, had, um, had done something wrong. His mistake was to kill off a number of the Givonim. Remember the Givonim, the ones who lied to Yoshua, and, and they said we're from a distant land, but really they were Canaanites, and then in the end Yoshua made them, made them water, water drawers and wood cutters, and Shaul, in retribution, kills them, which is a violation of the oath that Yoshua made, promising that they'd be okay and they were full converts, but Shaul, Shaul violated that oath, and now they're coming to David, they come before David and they say, we now want retribution. Shaul lied to us. Shaul has some sons who still survived, they're still alive. We want to kill them. David says, you can, al pi halacha, as, this is a second chapter of a Masech that maybe you're familiar with called Makos. He says, there's such a thing as Goel Hadam, as a blood redeemer. You can, by halacha, kill them. But notice the tone of voice that David uses. You really shouldn't. It's not what, don't try this at home, kids, but if you were to kill Shaul's sons, 
you would be, because they were involved in the killing of their own family members, um, Shaul's sons, you would be within your legal halachic rights. In these circumstances, you have to really study this case to really see if it, if it was legitimate. There was, they weren't in a near miklat, so technically Shaul's sons were fair game, and David told them this, and they went indeed and killed off um, seven of Shaul's surviving sons, but the no, we know that three were killed. When Yonah's son died, three were killed. We know that Ishboshes. Only he's, him, he's left though. So. No, Ishboshes has already died. Ishboshes has died in that. No, oh, oh yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Now seven were killed then. Ishboshes was the sole survivor in the end. You're right. The chronology we've tweaked a little bit. Um, now, a generation later, David's days, David comes along and makes a decree. He says, because this is all brought in the Gemara Nyavamos. Because these people actually acted according to halacha in a way that they really shouldn't have done, meaning they were within their halachic rights, but still, come on. Um, he made a decree, Jews and other Jews are not allowed to marry these givonim. Their innate cruelty came out in their act, and that's something that the, uh, that the Rahmanim Bnei Rahmanim, the, the, the descendants of Avim Yitzchak and Yaakov, uh, should not have anything to do with them. Um, and there's an issue of, of uh, intermarriage with them, even though technically they're Jewish. And now it's during this famine period of the three years um, that happens again because Shaul killed the Givonim. That whole episode that, ha- that took place is what generated the famine. Uh, Hashem allows Yoav to take a census of Klal Yisrael. Um, you know that there are two different versions of this in the Torah. In, in the Tanakh, one is in Sefer Shmuel, the other one is in Divir Yamim Chronicles. Do you know how that works? How, how, help me here. How well do you know the, the Tanakh? Shame on you. Uh, learn your Tanakh. You should know this stuff. So Divir Yamim is one of the more narrative-filled sections. It's the last in the order that it's brought, the last work in the Tanakh, Chronicles in English. And it goes through a recounting of the history of the world from the point of view it's authored by the Anshik Nesasagadola. And so it often has new novel events that you don't find in the earlier books. So in Diva Yamim, it tells us a different variation of the same story. In, in the Diva Yamim version, it's not Hashem, but Hasatan. Who's Hasatan? It's an angel. It's an angel. It's not the Christian version of the anti-God. God forbid. Chas There's no such thing as an anti-angel. Um, Hashem is in charge of everything. And Asatan is an angel. He's the subversive angel. Malachamavis Yetzirah who tries to show uh, Hashem who's really uh, ruling the world and who's really uh, what people are truly like. Um, he allows Yoav to take a census. Census means count the people. The nation has grown vast. It's, we're starting to see in the later years of David tremendous prosperity and people from around the world, non-Jews, are drawn in. They're attracted to the Kedusha. They're also probably attracted to the economic plenty and the, the prosperity of, 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 of Yisrael, of Klai Yisrael. And so now their numbers are growing. And so they're, they're allowed to take a census. Um, the problem is, are we allowed to take a census? What's the, what's the halachic <laughs> status of that, of that kind of a thing? Yeah, you have to. Well, no, when there's a mitzvah, we had a mitzvah. Right. In the Torah, there's machzit shekel we collect, and Hashem commands Moshe indeed to take a census. That much is true, um, but it depends on what your circumstances are. Um, can you count Jews? No, no. It's the minag is not to. We don't want to reduce people chas v'shalom to so many numbers. I mean, the, the, the image now has a grotesque, has a, takes on a grotesque meaning in the modern era as we see Auschwitz survivors with the numbers on their arms. 
Um, but the Jewish minhag, instead of counting for a minion, you know this, there's a posuk that has ten words, Hoshia Samechel Vareches Nachla Secha. So if we're trying to check if we have indeed a minion, um, as indeed we, um, now that Ilan has entered, we've just become exactly that in this room, a minion. Uh, thanks, Ilan, for joining us. Um, so uh, if you. Thank you. Oh, you mean it's him doing it? Yes, it's no, true. Oh, fine. So Hoshia Esamecha, we don't count with names. In this case, Hashem doesn't want the census, even though he allows it. David does it for no particular reason other than out of some kind of minimal, uh, uh, some kind of slight arrogance. It's nice to know how many people you have in your kingdom. Because the motivation is not pure, um, Hashem uh, realizes, uh, says, says as follows. It's a mistake. And he summons one of his Nevi'im. His, the Navi in this case is God. God is sometimes called a Jose, a visionary. God um, says to David, you can choose, this interesting scenario, one of three divine punishments for your mistake. And here are your options. The nation can suffer a famine. All of them are clearly Midik and Midik because all are going to kill off some of the Jews as a result. Uh, option door number two, it can be pursued by your enemies. Door number three, uh, you can choose a plague. Um, David is greatly aggrieved, and I think, it, at least assuming that you are all here for Mincha, you all said the famous pasuk in Divrei Hayamim a few minutes ago that just expressed how aggrieved, how 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 um, troubled David is by this episode. Does anybody know which pasuk I'm referring to? Thank you very much. You put your you put your arm, your head, your head on your left arm, and you said, "Vayomer David el Gad." You ever notice this in Tachanun, the, the beginning of Tachanun? That's the pasuk. It's from this episode. Sarli ma'od. I'm greatly affli- I'm greatly oppressed. I'm greatly troubled. That's because David's own arrogance has led to this calamity. Now he chooses the latter option. There's going to be a plague. A malach, an angel, comes through ravages the people with a plague, what's called Dever, and just as the angel is coming to Yerushalayim and is going to wipe out the Jewish population of Yerushalayim, Hashem, as it were, himself, comes and stops the plague. What's Dever? Dever is a kind of a plague. It's one of the, we remember Dever back from Egypt as well. Pestilence is often the translation. It's a, it's, it's a horrific kind of a plague that wipes people out. It stops when it's in Yerushalayim. Now, David is standing near the, remember the threshing floor of Arabna, the Jebusite? What was the same place? What's, where's that, what is that place? Remember that? You know, like the place called, we call Harabais. You did, you did, that away. I'm pointing, I'm pointing that away. Here in metaphorically, it's, it's right down the street and the, and the place where the temple is about to be built. Let me just finish the episode and then you'll, 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 uh, you'll ask your question. Um, at this point, as now, there's been a Yeshua. The Jews have been saved mercifully by Hashem. So David sees this as an opportunity. He turns now, years after the episode we described yesterday, where he, uh, he, he almost flooded the world with that shard of pottery in the same location. He now approaches Aravna himself, and he says, I'd like to buy this plot of real estate. How much? How much depends on which pasuk you're reading. In, um, in Sefer Shmuel, he buys it for 50 silver shekels. In Diva Hayamim, it costs 600. I guess that's inflation. Uh, in one version, it's 50 silver shekels. In the other, it's 600. But I think, honestly, he got a deal. 
You know, because you want to go buy that today from those Muslims up there, they're going to ask for cash. Not even credit card, yeah? What? Uh, it was worth a lot more. Silver shekels were worth, were worth a lot more. But even so, it, 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 was, it was a bargain, let's say. I don't think so, somehow. And if they did, somebody would, one of their cousins would annihilate them as a collaborator. That's true. Then David does something that is still technically mutter because the Mishkan is still, where's the Mishkan right now? As we find our heroes, it's in Givon. The Mishkan is located in, is in Givon. Remember, the Mishkan is where the, the center is, and that's where technically, that's where they offer korbanos. But while the Mishkan was in Gilgal, Nov and Givon, what are, what are famously permitted? Bamos. You're still allowed to offer anywhere you are, and David does just that for the first time in history on Harabais. He offers korbanos, totally mutter. He's not the first person. No, he's not the first person. Who's the first person to offer korbanos up there? Adam. Who's the, who, who next? Noyach. Noyach offers korbanos, and certainly Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Right, right. Lots of famous people preceded this. What's that? Adam Arishan offered in the, in the Makkum HaMikdash as the first man. Medrash tells us this. We, I, I mentioned this early on. When we, I remember that book. Yeah. Medrash, Medrash, it's not explicit in the Psukim. Medrash, Medrash fills this in. Um, yes, Arya. What was so bad about David having a personal motive to come to people? What is so bad about David doing this? For you and me, there would be no problem. Stop. We, you and me, it would not have been an issue. You have to realize, when you're in David's shoes, David's somebody who's worked on himself. He didn't accidentally become a good person. He worked on himself. And, and, and Hashem said, you are such a good person with such exemplary midos. I'm going to make you not only Melech Israel. I'm going to make you the prototype of a Melech Israel. You're going to be such a prototype that the only legitimate kings that will ever come afterwards are going to be your descendants, down to and including the Mashiach Tzidkenu. That's the level of greatness that you've achieved yourself, but you realize it comes with a price tag. You're going to have to realize that every little, and this is true for all of our leaders, and if you aspire for greatness, you're going to be held to the same high level, as Chazal expressed it, like by a hair's breadth, where everything you're going, to be do, you're going to be doing is going to be studied, is going to be understood, is going to be uh, debated. I mean, there's a story where Moshe Feinstein once, they said, would you like this milk? And he said, no, thank you. And, and immediately there was this big tumult. And he said, oh, Rav Moshe's not having the milk. It's not good. It's not Chalav Yisrael. And, so and, and later on, somebody approached him. And I'm sure I'm, I'm mixing with the story, but you can get the basic gist of it, which is, which is Rav Moshe, they said, why didn't you want the milk? And this is why, this is after many, you know, dozens of Jews have already forsworn themselves and no longer going to have that milk product anymore. So the, re the answer he gave was, oh, no, I didn't feel like milk that morning. But you have to realize when you're a person in a senior position like David Amel, every gesture, every action is going to be scrutinized by everybody, not only in your generation, but Lodoridoros. So that means you yourself have to hold yourself to the highest level of, of behavior. So any little bit of arrogance, gaiva, that creeps in is, is poison. And that's why, that's why he's held to this incredibly high, and maybe to our eyes, maybe almost unreasonable standard, but it's really not unreasonable. If you don't want the job, buddy, don't apply for it. Right? I mean, that's, that's the thing. I, you know, I, I, um, I was talking to somebody who's in Clay Kodish. Clay Kodish is the term we use to talk about, like, kind of like what we do, teaching, teaching Tyra, doing Kiru, taking attendance, right, see? Uh, right? And, and, and he was whining, complaining, it's not fair, it's not this. You know, I said to him, I'm, I, can, I can be tough sometimes. <laughs> Maybe I should have had more of but I said, you know, 
nobody told you to go into clay kodesh. It's a big aspiration. A lot of people, especially when you're in Eretz Israel, it's very these kinds of jobs are a big schus. You know, it's gavaldic to be teaching Torah in Eretz Israel, and a lot of people want to be doing it. I said, you don't have to do it. You know, we're in clay kodesh. What do you expect? You're going to be most nefesh. You have to work hard for it. If you don't want the job, don't take it. You don't want to be melech Israel, fine. So they, you want to do it, expect a high standard. Although Dom didn't pick to be melech That's fair. That's fair. But he did in a sense. Meaning, by, by his own aspiration spiritually, by his own seeking, he, as it were, and we all, in a sense, you can say that by anybody, anywhere. I didn't just say pick my particular fate, but because you work hard in your midos, because you are in the right place at the right time, Lamai said that's what the Kodesh Baruch has assigned you to do. And we all have to do that tachlis that we're here, we're designated to do in this world. And then you have to rise to the occasion. David now purchases the area, fair and square. That's ours down there, right? Our legacy, hold the thought, Jake. That is our legacy. He offers Corbonos for the first time now as an owner of Har Habais, the area that we call the Temple Mount. The um, post tells us the money that he used, which was a small fortune in those days, was money that was collected from all of Klal Yisrael. It was collected... It had been collected previously by Shmuel, by Shaul, by Avner, by Yoav, and it, was, it represented all of Shiftekah, all, every one of the tribes, and it's a very significant thing because it wasn't just David's. It's yours, it's mine, it's every member of our nation. And that's, that's critical that we feel that everybody has equal access to the holiest point in the universe. He did pay quite a lot, that's fair. Before yeah. What's the, so what? How could Dominic deal? You know, bargained it down. I don't know. That's interesting. You want to compare it, see what the Midrashim have to say? I'm not sure. Go ahead, Elon. Um, I, I think it was Henry Hudson. I'm not sure. But you think it was? I think it was Henry Hudson. I don't want to be sure. I don't want to say for sure. But he bought Manhattan for like a couple shelves. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, right, right, right. There are all kinds of, there are kinds of things like that. I would say, but I think when you make such a statement about Henry Hudson buying Manhattan, I think you want to preface it with a Lahavdil. Right, right, obviously, but just Lahavdil is an expression. It means to distinguish, but usually it's used when you're talking about something utterly, utterly trivial and profane like Manhattan. You know, no offense. I hope I'm not putting anybody down by saying that, right? It's true. The Jews are wonderful, but Manhattan is Manhattan is profane, um, and so um, it is. As I said, totally profane and irrelevant. Um, and so, and so, you talk about that. You don't want to, You don't necessarily want to compare it with the, you know, base of Mikdash, the Tibor Haolam. In many ways, one would imagine that. Center of everything that is materialism. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. It's the center of a lot of things, materialism, and so on. We, this is not a sheer and, and, and deconstructing New York, but we could do that if we wanted to. Um, yeah. I mean, you talk about arrogance. I remember. I remember that. I lived in New York for a few years. And I remember that feeling. I used to go down, I, well, I was in NYU, and this, I mean, most recently I was in NYU in the speaker program in the early 90s, and um, I we used to go down to the, to the upper, uh, upper East Side to teach a basic Judaism class in a synagogue, and I remember yeah, taking the subway downtown and then walking among the skyscrapers and thinking, you know, it's so hard not to walk here and to not feel the greatness of humanity. Wow, we're amazing. Look at human achievement. The my strength and the power of my hand, that's what got me here. Very hard to stare past the skyscrapers to the heavens and see a Kaddish Baruch Hu clearly and, and, and purely. And the base of Mikdash, in Yerushalayim, in Kodesh, Kaddish Baruch Hu, we're connected in a way that's not true anywhere else in the world. So David purchases it with money, that, that's all of our money, and until today, we're all connected. 
let's consider, let's consider, we ignore it, it goes off here all the time. Let's consider now that location more carefully. Think about it. The location, and I really should bring in visual aids for this. At one point, I'll bring in some pictures. Have you seen the picture of the stone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stone, what we call the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone. It's such a weird shape. It's like. Very strange, very strange. So I'll bring in, I'll bring in some of my pictures. Some of you came on a tour at the beginning of the year. I, I think I showed you the pictures. If not, Lee Netter, I'll show you more, uh, or I can send them to you if you want by email if you're curious. Um, the uh, Evan Shasia we hold to be the foundation stone. Um, in fact, it's called the Evan Shasia from the lashon of the Medrash Shemimena Hushtas Haolam. From this Evan Shasia, from this stone, the world was founded. As the Medrash elaborates, so the Zohar says, the world, the world was not created until Hashem took this stone and threw it into the primal depths, and from the stone, the rest of the world expanded. What do you mean by the primal depths? Remember, uh, Tovavohu. The chaos that, that initiated, as it were, the creation of the world. When the Kaddish Baruch Hu created the first element of physicality in the world, that element was this stone, and that's the same stone. It's the same point we keep saying, where all these gedolim back to Adam Arishon offered korbanos. It's the first site of the first yeshiva in the world, yeshiva Shemin Aver. It's the makom of the Akedah. It's the makom where Yaakov Avinu put his head down on the pillow and, and dreamt of angels. Uh, ascending and descending and ascending the ladder. Uh, it's the site where shortly Shlomo HaMelech is going to build the base of Mikdash, the first one, later the second one, and ultimately, as according to the vision of Yechezkel and Navi, the third base of Mikdash will stand in the exact same spot. Wait, is it the holiest place? It is by far the holiest place in the universe. So People how? call the Kosel the holiest point in the world. That's not quite right. <laughs> Kosel is close, but, not, but only approximate. The holiest place is what is, is, is right underneath that golden dome. I have to qualify that. That's according to the, the general consensus, the Ramban, Ravavani Bartanura, the Red Baz, uh, and most poskim, what the Arabs call El Sahra, that stone under the dome, is the Evan Shasia. Again, I'll show you pictures. If you want to send me an email, I'll, I'll, I'll show you a picture of Bleenet. I'll try to bring one in at one point. It's an excellent question. People are bothered by that because there are other times that they did. Uh, presumably, the level of Kedusha, because they built the building, has, as it were, uh, May build some kind of wall around them. Uh, doesn't mean that they're not cursed in other areas, but uh, but they, they don't they don't exp they, clearly they don't, not everybody dies. Although although I must tell you, uh, the last thousand or two thousand years or so are is replete with all kinds of stories, maybe legendary but maybe true, of people going down underneath. Uh, today you look down, and some of my pictures I'll show you. There are there's under the stone there's a chamber, and there's a bunch of rugs that obscure some. Um, some metal grills that hide a staircase that go down to these heavy, to this underground labyrinthine maze of tunnels. And they have all kinds of legends that, that are told over the generations of people going down there and never coming back up again. Yes, yeah, so that stone that people see may not be the stone that. Under the Golden Dome, what I'm telling you is the consensus <laughs> the post can believe that it is, it is the stone. There may be a minority view to the contrary, because the placement is not quite proper. It does, it's, it's not so clear how it stems with the Mishnah in Yuma. There's some technical issues with it, but the consensus, as I said, is that that's the stone. Wait, there's the Kiva, it's called the Kiva of Souls, right? 
there's a hole in it, and then he walked into the hole. That's the key of souls. Maybe somebody has the name for it. I'm not familiar with that name. Do you know what the end of the maze is? Yes, I'm going to tell you about it shortly, but let me get there. Maybe the R-O-D is down there. David now gathers the nation in Yushalayim after, after having effectively purchased the site of the base of Mikdash that he knows he himself is not going to build, but he acquires the site for Klal Yisrael. He gathers the nation. Remember, he's unified all of Klal Yisrael. And you kind of have to revel in this time period. This is just about the last period in history that we have unity under David and Shlomo. Um, and all of the nation rallies around to the area. The Posuk in Divrei Yaming describes, describes the bracha that they give to Kaddish Baruch Hu. This also will sound familiar. We have it in our tefillah. They say, among other psukim, L'cha <laughs> Hashem, they praise Hashem, L'cha Hashem ha-gdula v'gvura v'tiferes v'netzach v'ahod k'chol v'shamayim v'aretz L'cha Hashem ha-mamlacha v'minaseh l'chol l'rosh. A, a proclamation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's majesty and sovereignty over all of the heavens and earth and all of the uh, nations of the world. This is arguably David's last crowning achievement. In his old age, as we mentioned, he couldn't get warm. Uh, we remember because of cutting Shaul's garment. I also mentioned that the Avish, uh, what's called the, uh, a woman by the name of Avishag or Shunamis is sent to him. The Medrash tells us that she has a famous sister. Avishag Shunamis, that we're going to meet in a few in, in, in a little while from now. Uh, her sister, according to the Medrash, is the Isha Mishunaim, the woman who she, uh, from Shunaim, who is a famous Balas Chesed, who hosts people, including Tamerei Chachamim, like Elisha the prophet. And her, exactly, that's the story. We read it. Um, we're going to read it soon enough in a few weeks in Parsh in Haftarah for Vayera. Um, there is a traditional place that many Gedolim hold to be the original house of the Shunamis in Shunem uh, that I visited this summer and I posted the picture on my website. If you look at my website, I have a picture of myself guiding right in front of the this site. Anyway, the sister is Abishag. She's sent to give some kind of warmth, comfort to David in his old age. While he's in his old age and he's not quite gone and there's no new king, even though there's a designated king in the form of, we know that Shlomo is designated to be the next king. There's another son by the name of Adoniyahu who's waiting in the wings and it's a classic kind of political intrigue when an you know, old dad is no longer functional. Let me step into the breach and take advantage. He asserts himself as the next king. And guess who supports him? Yoav. Yoav who's been, who's a great figure. He's a flawed, tragic figure. He's a great figure, but he's certainly, there's, there's, there's a bit of enmity between Yoav and his uncle David. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't abate even now, even as David is lying near the end of his lifetime. Yoav goes over to support Adoniyahu in his insurrection. Evisar the Cohen supports Sadok. <coughs> uh, uh, excuse me. Evisar supports um, other great Jews. Stay loyal to David, including Sadok and Benayahu ben Yehoyada and Nosson the prophet. They they stay loyal to David. And there's a knock on the king's door. And one of the great women of his household, Bathsheba, comes and steps in, and she begs the king, she says, you remember that there's somebody that Echadosh Baruch himself has designated to be the next Melech Yisrael. he's my son, Shlomo, and you have to, you have to assert yourself, David. And David agrees, <clears throat> he follows his, his great wife's guidance, he says, he says, Shlomo, he publicly proclaims him, will be the next king, Adoniyahu is silenced, 
he, as David lays dying, he calls Shlomo to his side. He says, to be, to solidify your kingdom, you must take matters in your hand. Shlomo is all of how old? He's 12 years old. He's a great 12-year-old, we're about to say, but he's 12. He said, you must definitively create a system of justice where there's restitution and the people who have what's coming to them, their comeuppance, must be addressed. You must, he says, you have to judge Yoav finally. I wouldn't do it in my lifetime, but remember, Yoav is guilty for killing Amasa and Avner. Remember, you have, you have, you have to hold him to, to, uh, to account. He pilled Gilead. Yoav, by the way, there's a very famous Gemara, also in Makos. How many times have I mentioned Makos recently? We have a lot coming up in Makos. Be excited this year. Um, in any case, uh, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a famous story about Yoav in Makos. He's Makos near the end of his lifetime. He says, you're going to judge Yoav. You're going to judge Shimi ben Gera. Remember yesterday for cursing the, the Klal and Imretzis, who throw stones at him as Eli knocks out? Thanks. That's good. Uh, very good. We talked about it yesterday. Very good. Um, he gives a bracha to his son. He says, final words, follow the Torah, and David dies. Uh, again, he doesn't want to perform any of these punishments. He doesn't want to be accused of acting out of any personal interest. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, before we leave David, s- refers to David Melech Yisrael, and it says, Chai V'Kayam. See, it's not just a cute song, it's also a Gemara. Chai V'Kayam. And it means as follows. He still lives. He died, remember, 70 years later, taking the 70 years from Adam Arishon. What the Gemara explains is, on a certain level, David never tasted the taste of death. Sleep is quasi-death. Just like he never entered deep sleep, as some of you may be entering as we speak right now. Uh, But David never entered deep sleep. Uh, Remember those four (laughs) half-hour intervals. He never slept what's called... Only the mild sleep, like a horse that's standing there is half awake and half asleep. That was David's sleep. He never tasted the taste of death. And then he passes away. Where is David buried? I don't know what you mean by most people say on Harazesim. There's a logic to indicate that it might be up on the Mount of Olives, but there's no tradition for that. Some people say near also. Right. So there is the oldest tradition in a place that today is un- incorrectly called Hartzion, where you can go to David's tomb across from the diaspora. You see it today. Um, you know what? I guide there. there. It could be. It doesn't make sense on a certain level, but I make a case that we don't know that it's not either. So that may be there. It may be, as you say correctly, in what they call Ir David today, the first French, the French Jewish archaeologist in the modern times to come excavating in Israel, in the, uh, right around the time of right before World War One, a Frenchman by the name of Raymond Weil uh, came and excavated, and he feels that there's a place. Um, you know where it is by the Beit Miuchas in the city of David. There's a place that they consider maybe David's tomb. Nobody knows for sure, but here's a story about David's tomb. Many years later. Near the end of the Second Temple period, there's a famous Russia by the name of? Famous, easy guess if anybody knows their history. Who's the famous Russia from the end of the Second Temple period? His name is Herod. Very good. Harry? No, not Harry. Not Harry, that's a different thing. Herod. Herod. Hordus in Hebrew. 
And Herod, Herod was one of the richest men in the world, and like many rich men, his wealth was not enough for him. He sought more, and he wanted to raid the tombs of the, king, of the kings of Israel in order to find more. And he comes by night. He's not with necessarily two, Herod? I mean, he's more complex than that. He's more complex, but nobody said he, that he's not a Russia. He's most definitively a Russia. Yes. And the Gemara has to grapple with that. How does, how does he, how is that justified? But now you're really ahead of me, and I'm not going there now. I'm going to tell my story. No, I'm not waiting. I'm going to tell my story. I don't want to be deflected. I don't. I, I haven't got there yet. Hold up. I'm going to get there. So, uh, just to wind down, David, uh, interesting medrash that tells us when Hordus brought, he wanted to steal the treasures. He comes by night with two youth. Um, and waits by the entrance as, the, as he sends the two youth down. He apparently, at the end of the Second Temple period, did know where David was buried. They go down into the tomb to start scouting around for what's down in there, and before Herod knows what's happening, a massive fire consumes the boys and almost gets Herod himself. He flees for his life and gets away. Uh, later, he builds a shrine there, and we're not quite sure where the there is, Maybe it's Hartzion, maybe elsewhere. Uh, the Pasuk that David writes in Tehillim, one of the Pasukim is, Hashlech al Hashem Yahavcha, throw to Hashem your own burden. He'll take care of you, he'll supply you, he'll sustain you. If you are in this world and you need to make a parnasa, you have difficulty, you've got physical needs and challenges. Give those over to Kaddish Baruch Hu. He will take care of you. That's a hard order, especially in the modern world where we tend to lack bitachon. We don't really have that kind of faith. But, a, but David Melech was one of these neshamas that came along and literally threw his portion to Hashem, and Hashem <laughs> took care of him. While he sat for most of his life learning Torah, Kaddish Baruch Hu took, took care of everything. I mean, you have to imagine, that was his st- strategy for statesmanship. He was the politician who ruled by learning Torah. Uh, one imagines, one, look, one looks at the blustering political figures of today, chasing their tails like so many dogs going around in a circle, and uh, they're, not, they're not really that much more qualified than David by sitting learning Torah. Um, this period, David's last years, Shlomo's first years, which we're going to at least introduce today before the break, were the peak time was the peak time for Klal Yisrael in every way imaginable. Politically, <coughs> economically, spiritually. The Gemara Nebuchadnezzar tells us <coughs> this is one of the top times that converts, or prospective converts, were trying to almost break down the doors to come in to Klal Yisrael. You remember, we're not a proselytizing, not a proselytizing religion. It's possible, theoretically, for a convert to convert, to somebody to convert to Judaism. We're not looking. We don't try to, we don't try to recruit new members, per se. But when it's so, when the goodness is so real, and the Torah is so imminent, and, the, and, and Klal Yisrael is doing what they're meant to be doing with unity, keeping mitzvahs in the land, learning Torah as they're supposed to do, that inevitably is, an, is attractive. And people <clears throat> come knocking on our door. It reflects the utopia that we're seeking to build. Listen, it's an important image that we keep in our minds today as well. We are in all kinds of trouble as, 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 a, as a people today. We have to keep this image that our goal long term is to build this kind of utopia that David in his later years and Shlomo certainly in the early years were capable of building. And when we picture the Messianic era, the Mashiach, the time of the Mashiach, 
this is pretty much the template. Uh, the, the, the corollary to this statement is that it only gets, de it only gets worse from here. The rest of history is a uh, generally declining, I mean, not a perfect decline, it sometimes goes up and down like a graph, but generally declining from this, this peak, this zenith point in history. So after Odom, this is the second. Really, in, a, in many ways, you're gonna hear why. With the, with the building of the first base of Mikdash, it, in many ways, as the Medrash says, all of creation was poised for this moment in time. So let's consider very briefly at the beginning, as we as we, we have about 15 minutes left today, let's consider the figure of Shlomo Melech, who is one of the most beguiling figures, certainly one of the most colorful and entertaining. If you don't know anything about him, really fasten your seatbelts, you're in for some real great stories. Uh, and we're going to start telling them, and we'll have to continue after the, after the, uh, the, the Chagim, uh, but it's a nice, nice chance that we have to really consider this, this hard, to, hard to understand figure. He represents in his, in his personality ultimate greatness combined with impending doom. Not an easy combination. Really from this point in history the only way to go in a sense was down or bring the Mashiach and end everything. He rules from the ripe old age of 12 uh, for the next 40 years until his own death at the age of 52. Who else died at the age of 52? Shmuel, Shmuel and Navi, similar lifespan. Um, he starts building the base in Mikdash sometime later. Uh, according to one view, it seems the year later. Others, the more common view is he waits four years to build the base in Mikdash. Now, what's happened? David has just died. Adoniyahu has been sort of suppressed, but is still sort of waiting in the wings. This is the beginning of the book of, of Malachim, which is written by. Who wrote, who wrote Malachim? The Navi Yirmiyahu, many years later, wrote Malachim. And Adoniyahu claims to support Shlomo, but he does something really odd. He said, can I have Shlomo, can I have Abishag as a wife? What's wrong with that word? And you should know. We talked about this earlier today. What's wrong with the request of Adoniyahu requesting Abishag? What do you got, Akiva? It's like, a, it's it's like a, you don't take the king's wife. Like right. Remember how we had... Uh, What's his name? Absalom. Exactly. This is, how, this is how political intrigue, intrigue is born. And Shlomo, all of 12 years old, recognized it in an instant. Said, these are fighting words. And he didn't permit it. Uh, he understood this is insubordination. Um, the king is anointed. Um, this is not necessary in all instances. Not every Melech Yisrael has to be Melech Mashiach. You know the term Mashiach means anointed? The anointed one. You don't require anointing in every generation. When do you need it? For example, here by Shlomo, when there's a dispute. If somebody raises a question about the legitimacy of your Malchus, then you need a formal ceremony so that the nation sees, oh, oh, he's the real one. See, he's got the olive oil. He's got the, 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 the holy Shevet Mishra that, that, that certified the deal. Um, and here, because Adoniyahu had made a claim to the monarchy, it was necessary that Shlomo have an official anointment. He got anointed when he was 12. Yes. You were the Eva Barmet. Correct. So, how did that make sense? Why not? No requirement. It's fine. Yeah. Remember, it's by Hashem's decree as well. Yeah. Uh, so he has a full anointment. He's saying he's got no, he, he doesn't take all these other He's got no responsibility. Uh, not formally, but as king he does. 
As king he does. Now, um, there's a little bit the Rambam describes in Hilchos Malachim. He explains that once a king has been duly anointed, by the way, there's a great deal if anybody wants to try this, in case you happen to be from the, you happen to be from the seat of David. Um, once you're anointed king, you're guaranteed that the monarchy will go through you forever, and Mashiach will be born, will be born from your progeny. That's a pretty nice deal, right? Um, no, nobody's interested in, nobody, so, far, so far I haven't sold it, so the Rambam teaches, um, this is on condition that your progeny are all tzaddikim, so make sure you work on your midos now so they can follow your example. Um, if a king leaves only one young son, but he's too young, and we're going to see this in the case of Yoash, uh, he's too young to assume the position, then they hold on to the position for him until he comes of age. Uh, if, there, if there's more than one son, the rules go that the older son is given precedence over a younger son. When there's a dispute, we find Shlomo and Adonai'ah, there's a dispute. In the case of Yoash, there's a dispute. Later, Yoachaz is going to dispute, and all of them need proper anointing. The ceremony takes place in Givon, where the Mishkan is still located, in none other than the Oel Moed of Moshe Rabbeinu. The same Oamoe that they'd saved all these years from the desert experience is still there, and that's where Shlomo's coronation takes place. The what? The anointment takes place in the Oamoe of Moshe in the in Givon. Givon, remember, also is not so far away. It's just north of Yerushalayim. Uh, probably the best guess today, it's, there's an Arab village by the name of Jib. Just north, you ever see, go out and look north towards what they call Kever Shmuel, Nebi Samuel on the hill? I'm talking about so just north of there is a hostile air village that you can't enter but they believe that's biblical Givon and that's where Shlomo is anointed and made the king the uh, the Mishkan there is still not a fully functional Mishkan because it lacks the Aaron Kodesh where's the Aaron right now no no we got it back remember David dancing at Jerusalem where is it now where did David bring it he built a tent in Ir David and it's temporarily in this tent down in Ir David. That's where, that's where the, uh, the, the Aaron is. So that's why the Mishkan, that's why Bamos were permitted, because the Mishkan is not a full Mishkan back in those days. Now, on the day of anointing, Shlomo didn't want, did not want to spill any blood. Even though his father said, immediately take care of business. Immediately you've got to uh, make sure that the people who deserve to be killed are killed. But he doesn't want to spill blood on that day. He is true to his name in Ish Shalom, Shlomo, a man of peace. Um, later, though, he indeed is a man of deen as much as he is a man of Shalom. And he oversees the execution of Adoniyahu, his brother. He oversees the execution of Shimi ben Gera, the one who cursed David. And that one was a little hard. It's very dramatic. I encourage you to learn the psukim. It's extremely dramatic because, among other things, Shimi ben Gera, even though he messed up and he was high of Misa, but he was, among other things, Shlomo's own Rebbe. And so killing his own Rebbe, but that's what you had to do. The man was high of Misa. It wasn't because he was... No, because he was high of Misa. No, but nonetheless, you could have had somebody else do it. He oversaw it. He oversaw it. Evyasar, the Kohen, gets a pardon. You have to understand Evyasar's figure. We haven't really analyzed it here, but he's pardoned. Um, and because of this chesed, Yoash later is going to survive. We'll see all that. Meanwhile, this is the, this is the, this is the episode that we find in, in, uh, in our Masechta in Makos. Yoav, knowing that his, the jig is up and his time has come, flees. And he runs to Givon. 
he runs to Givon to the Mizbeach and he um, yeah first he flees to the Kivrei Avos in Hebron and then he goes to the Sanhedrin to appeal his judgment and everyone he screams so loud they hear his voice and he says there's nobody like me I've been the bravest most self-effacing uh, defender of Klal Yisrael and they all agree and they carry him out to be killed anyway and he screams he says I've killed all of your enemies and this is how you repay me with this evil Yoav Yoav's this general who's deserving of the guilt uh, of the death sentence but even so he also fought he was his his merits include he was extremely generous he built mikvahs he built bathhouses for Klal Yisrael he fed Chachamim at his table his home was open to the poor at all times but he sees them as he takes out their weapons. He warns Shlomo that one, the day would come when he wished he had a hero like Yoav to go to battle for him. Shlomo tells him, Yoav, I'm not punishing you from anger. I love you. But this is your decree. And those of us who've learned Makos realize when you give them the punishment, whether it's Misa or Malkos or whatever the punishment is, it's, or, or the Irmiklat, the city of refuge, it's actually a chesed. Remember the Kalvachomer, we undid Vehino Senes on Beisam with Beis. The Kalvachomer is actually the, the Ir Miklat, the punishment of Gullus is not a punishment as much as it's a Kapara, it's a Chesed. For the person who gets this punishment, this way their slate is clean, and that's what Shlomo expressed to Yoab. Don't think of this in negative terms. You're technically Chayev Misa. When you get the Misa, Misa is Mechaperis, like Yom Kippur, death, death absolves you of your sin. <coughs> Yoav runs away, as I said. He flees to the, um, to the horns of the Mizbeach in Givon, um, but he makes a mistake. The Gemara, the Gemara tells, tells us that it only works, uh, only the top of the Mizbeach, uh, only in Yerushalayim does it work. And Yoav, Yoav our Gemara says Shiloh, other Mepharshim say it must have been Givon. Uh, it only works for, for the Kohen when he's doing the Avoda. Uh, Yoav was off. Even though he's a Talmud Chacham, he made a mistake here. Benayahu ben Yehoyada is the head of the Sanhedrin, and he slays Yoav. And um, there's a great kasha. How could he do that when he was a Kohen? Go look it up. Um, How? Go look it up. The Terutzim, I don't want to slide into that tangent, because I, I, have, I have a few more things I want to do to finish. Early on in his monarchy, Shlomo gets a vision. Hashem directly appears to Shlomo in a dream. And Hashem tells him, this is really unique, I don't think we find this anywhere else in history, you can have anything that you wish. That's kind of good. You, you want that in life, no? Anybody have this happen to them? Okay, I didn't think so. Ask for anything they wish. Hashem comes to you personally in a dream and asks you anything you wish, Aryeh, and please don't make it a candy bar. So what does Shlomo ask for? He says, he asks, and this is striking, Shlomo, all of 12 years old, and uh, beyond his years, clearly, he said, Hashem, you know, he could ask for anything. He could ask for wealth. He could ask for uh, honor. He could ask for long life. He says, I just want a little bit of wisdom so that I know how to lead this people correctly. Hashem is so impressed when you're given such an offer from Hashem, you have to know what the right thing to ask for. The request is so obviously the Shem Shemaim. It's so correct. It's really Shlomo's greatest moment that Hashem says, you will have Chochmah. Not just any Chochmah, but 
more chokma than any other human being will ever ha- has ever had before you and will ever have again. Shlomo is the smartest, the greatest chacham of all time, as Hashem deems it. But not only chokma, he says, because you could have asked for other things. In addition, I will. I'm impressed with your selflessness. You're going to have wealth, honor, long life. <coughs> And basically everything that you need to rule this people in the most illustrious way. And the stories are just, uh, you're going to love this. If you don't know these stories, uh, Shlomo's life is, a, is quite a tragedy. But, uh, but what he achieves, especially in his early years, is, is uh, staggering. But 52 is not a old age. Oh, that's interesting. So you have to explain the long life. That's fair. That's fair. Long life could be understood. It's subjective. Oh, yeah, it's, like a it's a kasha. It's a kasha. Shlomo has one quality that his father does not have. David reigned, but he was a, I mean, he ruled as a king, but he was opposed. You don't have to think further than Absalom, but not just Absalom, Ishboshis, we saw Sheba ben Bichri briefly today, and others. David had problems. Shlomo is unique. He rules for 40 years unopposed. Here's another meaning of his name. Shlomo is Shalom. It's one of those few areas of history that you can point to and say, ooh, those were the good old days. Uh, until they until they weren't near the end of Shlomo's reign, uh, there were problems from within. Um, but he reigned unopposed. And one of the first early episodes is the episode of the two mothers that demonstrated the uh, the wisdom of Shlomo. I'm going to give you. There's much to say. I'm going to give you an abbreviated version just so we have a sense really what kind of wisdom Hashem imparted in him. Two mothers step forward, uh, claiming as follows: They each had a baby. One of the babies died, one of the babies survived, and each one says, this is my baby. What do you do? Who wins? Who loses? So Shlomo very famously, this is just a psukim. Shlomo very famously says, we'll cut the baby in half, and each of you will take half of the, half of the baby. And one of the mothers says, that's just fine. Thank you very much. I'll take half. And the other one says, no, no, give the baby to the other one. She doesn't want to see the baby die. And Shlomo says, that's the mother. Now, it sounds all very simple and nice. There are lots of kashas. I'm going to give you a little bit of chazal just to uh, whet your appetite, to pique your interest a little bit. There's much more that goes on. Um, what's the story? Uh, they couldn't figure out. This is an alternate modern version. Um, who was the real mother-in-law? And they brought the man forward, and the great king, not Shlomo in this case, brought the, um, the king step forward, the king step forward the, and, and the man was brought forward and the man said, cut the son-in-law in half. And the first woman says, the first woman says, no, no, don't do it. And the second woman says, yes, that's fine, I'll take half. And the king looked and said, that's the mother-in-law. Okay, that's the apocryphal version. Okay, in any case, here's a little bit of Chazal and their brilliance in explaining this story. Um, there are three views of, over who were these ladies. One is they were demon spirits, ruchos, uh, and they were there deliberately to, as to demonstrate how great Shlomo's wisdom was at his young age. Another pshat... Well, they were like yes. Another pshat is that they were yuvamos. They were yuvamos. They were, as it were, uh, co-wives waiting to be married to, uh, to somebody else. I'm going to flesh that one out a little bit. Um, Another shot is that the verse refers to them, at, refers to them as zonos, immodest women. And, and the third view is that they actually were, indeed, prostitutes. <coughs> um, it's so significant, what's called mishpat shlomo, the, the trial of, of shlomo. Listen to this medrash. Why is the body like this? 
Why did the you know Kaddish Baruch Hu could have created the human body in a lot of different ways? We are not perfectly, but relatively symmetrical, with um, mostly most body parts coming in pairs, as it were. And the answer, according to the Medrash, was for this moment in time. There's certain generations, there's certain people, there's certain times that are so significant that all of history comes around for it. And the Medrash tells us this was so Shlomo could suggest splitting the child exactly in half. Our body till today is symmetrical, all in order to facilitate the Mishpat Shlomo back in this one day. That's what it shows you is the meta-significance of our lives. Half that way, it, right, he meant that way. down vertically, exactly. Uh, um, but, but what's significant is you start to realize, hey, you know, right now I'm struggling with my Yitzhahara. Maybe all of creation was poised for this one moment when I have my own, what seems to be petty, irrelevant kind of struggle with my Yitzhahara. But meanwhile, look at the, the beginning of the Rambam's Hilchos Tshuva in the fifth parrot, beginning of the fifth parrot in the Hilchos Tshuva, and he says everybody must live life that way, that you are hanging in the balance. And all of your, your mishpat now, as we head into the Yom Kippur, your, your judgment all depends on your next act. Let it be a righteous one. And it's not just your judgment. Live your life as if the entire world is hanging in the balance and therefore your act, everything is, is poised for that. Um, <clears throat> what was Shlomo's proof? The Shlomo's proof was the lying woman didn't want so much that the other, she didn't want the other woman's baby. Really what she wanted was that her rival wouldn't have a baby. She didn't have a baby. So she didn't want the other woman to have a baby too. In other words, her motivation was jealousy. And that's how Shlomo knew that that couldn't be the mother. Another explanation, the Mamlawe says, why would any woman be happy with the killing of a baby anywhere, anytime? That's just weird. You ever think about that? It's a kasha on the case. The Mamlawe brings the pshat as follows. Um, if the women were both Yavamos, they were co-wives, here, here's what happened. They were actually mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And the daughter-in-law was really the wife who had to wait for this new baby to grow up for 13 years until she fell before him as the Yavama. In other words, that baby was the little brother of her recently deceased husband who had no children. How did he have no children? Because her son was the one that died. Do you hear the complexity? It's a brilliant shot. Okay, it's Chazal. So she had to wait all this time for the, the, that boy to die. So when she, which is a terrible, terrible fate, to have to wait 13 years, which means that may, the marriage may never take place. So when she hears the king's judgment that the, that the child has to be cut in half, she's now liberated. And that's perhaps how a woman can be happy with the death of this boy. In other words, it's much more intricate than meets the eye, and that really explains the depth of Shlomo's understanding. Um, from this point, People in the world are drawn to Shlomo, uh, and um, we're done. But I almost don't want to end it. Can I give you just a taste of his greatness? I have to look at one good story. Wake up for a second. We're almost done. We're almost done. I'm, I'm a little over time. I don't want to end on this note. Let me give you a little, little taste. Shlomo's first years are his greatest. I do? Okay. And, it's, and we really ended five to five. So I'm over time. But let me just give you this. You'll enjoy this. Um, he was the wisest of men. His base team was unique, didn't require witnesses. Why? All he had to do was look at people's foreheads and he knew what was going on. He could detect a liar, he can figure them out. Who else in history, I'm just curious if you all know this, famously, one of the great 
figures in all of history could look at a person's forehead and understand exactly everything that he needed to know about him. I'll give you a hint, he lived in the 16th century in the Common Era. He lived for most of his life, of his 38 years in Egypt, but the last two he went up, he went up to Tzfas. The Arizal. The Arizal had the same quality. I have to say, if you consider that quality, if you look at somebody's forehead and you, you got their number, it's not the most endearing quality. You think about it, people don't, you're not the most popular person if you can look at and, and see everybody's uh, sins on their forehead. But Shlomo could do that, and that's why he didn't require Adim. He had supernatural powers as a Kaddish Baruch Hu, uh, as, as a Kaddish Baruch Hu set it up. Um, if, not only that, if false witnesses entered to testify, this is much better than being, than, than being rendered Zomamim, if they entered, he sat on a magnificent throne, Shlomo Melech. The throne itself would be activated and talk about lie detector tests was sensitized to the lies. Immediately there were wheels on the side of the of the chair that started magically turning. There were oxen that were that were immobile, inanimate oxen that came alive and started humming as the witnesses testified. Two carved lions on either side of the throne started roaring. The wolves howled, the lambs bleated, tigers roared, bears growled, hawks screamed, birds chirped, and peacocks ran about. If you were one of those witnesses, look out. It's like a horror movie, right? Um, The throne itself was surrounded by 90,000 shares of gold, 70 designated for the Sanhedrin, 60 for the Chachamim, Kohanim, and Levim, two were for the great Nevim, Nasan and God are still around. On his right, was a special chair for Bathsheba, his mother, the queen mother. But then there's an interesting pasuk that's hard to understand. It, after lists Bathsheba in the pasuk, it then said, and above him was Aim HaMelech, the mother of the king. This is one of my favorite bits. So Bathsheba's already been covered. So who's the mother of the king? Well, of course, his great-great-grandmother, Rus, who's still alive and present to get Nachas Min the kinder, as she sits there in the, in, the, in the ultimate position of kavod, it's a great image. Getting final nachasing her great-great-grandson, Shlomo himself, ruling over the United Israel. Talk about fulfilling a dream of a lifetime. So she's there as part of the, part of the, um, part of the um, spectacle. Um, whatever happened to that throne, whatever that great throne, as different things wind through history, everybody wants it. It's one of the great, it's one of the great ob- objects of history. So very briefly... Shishak, or some say it was Paronecho, stole the throne, but they couldn't sit on it. And so one of the, and when they tried to sit on it, one of the lions struck him and made him lame. That's the second term, Paronecho. Necho is a term for, for uh, somebody who's disabled. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came, came to Egypt and he stole the throne and brought it to Babylon. He also didn't know how to sit on it and the lion attacked him and he also became lame. Later, Dayaves of Persia destroyed Babel. He stole it, took it back to Madai. Somewhere in the interim, it was lost, but it was always on everybody's mind. Every king in the world coveted that share, not the least of which Achashverosh. He brought, he assembled the greatest Chachamim of the world to make a replica of Shlomo's chair, but he couldn't do it. We understand that Alexander the Great somehow brought it down to Egypt during the Greek times. Rebbe Lazar and the time that Tanaim saw fragments of the broken Kisei back in Rome. And one imagines that that Kisei, that great throne, will be reassembled uh, in the end of days when Mashiach Tzitkenu himself sits in the same uh, miraculous, wondrous throne. Bezrat Hashem, 
when we back, when we, come, we return after after break, uh, we're just getting started with Shlomo Amelach. Um, we'll see some of the wonders, and of course, the wonders are meant to teach us some great uh, musr and insight into into history, into this spectacular Melech Yisrael named Shlomo.